Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today I have the honour in introducing Mr. Justin Bronk, who is a lead researcher for the UK Air Capabilities at the Royal United Services Institute. Justin's work encompasses many of the questions that we have surrounding our UK airspace, our air defence and the future and modernisation. Justin's education has included the University of York, where he did an MA in International Relations at the London School of Economics on top of that. But without further ado, I'll let Justin Bronk answer some of the questions regarding UK's air capabilities and regarding the UK combat aviation. Thanks, and thanks for the invite uh, to come on. Um, so I'm uh, currently uh, looking at a couple of projects, although uh, everything's gone a bit slow time these days uh, because with research trips uh, being still very difficult to do COVID-wise, uh, things are sort of backed up. Uh, current project uh, is going to be going out and uh, talk to the UK's Typhoon Force, uh, looking specifically at uh, the, the process by which initially trained pilots go through to become um, qualified, uh, first of all, qualified flying instructors, then qualified weapons instructors. Essentially, the point of the, the, the eventual paper uh, is to, uh, first of all, lay out the requirements and costs in, uh, implied by the need to develop uh, military aircrew to the point where they are combat leaders, um, tactically speaking at least, uh, but also lay out actually the, the, the enormous range of skills uh, and expertise that a country gains access to by doing that um, and contrast that then with some of the discussions that are coming in around uh, where uh, unpiloted or unmanned, uh, as we say, unmanned uh, air, air vehicles can potentially uh, start um, substituting for or at least augmenting uh, more traditional platforms. So yeah, trying to contrast that pilot training and expertise bit with, with the unmanned uh, systems. Um, and also potentially planning to take a look later on in the year at the future of um, carrier uh, aircraft carrier air wings around the world, um, because it's rather an interesting time for that. Uh, so yeah, um, finished last year uh, study on combat aviation. So in particularly the UK's uh, One Aviation Brigade was I should say was my uh, colleague Jack Watling, uh, who's a land warfare specialist, um, and also look uh, last year at uh, Russian and Chinese fast air capabilities and previously Russian and Chinese ground-based air defence capabilities. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a fun couple of years despite COVID. And as I was looking at some of your research done at RUSI, I was taken aback by the level and the scope of the dialogue that quite frankly took me by surprise. I think like many hobbyists, we are amazed at anything that has to do with faster than the speed of sound travel. But having said that, I was actually quite surprised at some of the conclusions made in your reports and specifically the, what the role of combat aviation actually is and where the helicopter actually sits at the heart of the debate in the UK's air capabilities of tomorrow. And we'll get into that in a second. But one of the questions that came through my mind as I was reading A Fewer Wings and Prayer to the Future, which is a report that you've done for uh, for Rusi, was uh, just this, actually. I didn't really understand what the role of the helicopter was in the Royal Air Force and the, the Army, perhaps, more closely. And I was taken back by its uh, more predominantly support role, but I will let you fill in the blanks and, and just briefly explain to us uh, a very brief overview of what exactly is a combat um, aviation support and um, and what a battle operation actually looks like. 
Yeah, so the aviation, so when we, when we say uh, aviation, we typically mean uh, rotary wing, which is slightly confusing because, of course, aviation is used as a catch-all term uh, by normal people um, for you know anything that flies pretty much. Um, but in the military context, we tend to say aviation, meaning specifically helicopters. Um, so the uh, the community in the British Army and the Royal Air Force would tend to abbreviate these uh, the two main categories to SH and AH should support helicopter and attack helicopter. Um, and you're right, the, the, the majority of the UK's fleet, vast majority, uh, and indeed the majority of most uh, helicopter operating uh, military's fleets are in the SH, the support helicopter category. Uh, for the UK, we have, of course, uh, the kind of iconic Chinook, uh, the, the twin main rotor-bladed um, heavy lift helicopter. Uh, the UK has 60 of them currently, although those are going to be reduced uh, slightly, I think, down to 51, uh, as the older ones are, are replaced by uh, new new build examples from the US uh, over the next uh, half a decade or so. Um, but they're, they're the kind of backbone of the UK's helicopter capability is the Chinook Force. Um, and then the Puma, uh, which is a medium lift helicopter, now rather an old medium lift helicopter, um, which has been... Uh, uh, cut early by the, the, the recent Defence Command paper as part of the integrated review. Um, that again is another support helicopter. Uh, both of those uh, saw quite a lot of service in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, in particular the Chinook, uh, as well as the Merlin, which is another support, support helicopter that's now operated entirely by the Royal Navy and the Commando Force, um, as both a, a typical utility support helicopter, i.e. transporting troops and cargo, um, but also for the Royal Navy, of course, as an anti-submarine warfare um, asset and also uh, as an early warning, airborne early warning asset with the Crow's Nest uh, radar for the carrier uh, battle groups. So support helicopters performing a lot of functions there. In Iraq and Afghanistan, they became very famous for the the, the MERT uh, or the, the, the uh, medical evacuation uh, teams that would be brought in to try and get troops uh, out of, you know, often under fire, get troops out of um, firefights when they've been wounded and get them to trauma centers within the golden hour, as it's called. Essentially, the golden hour means is, is, is a reference to the fact that if troops can be got to a, a wounded troops can be got to a, a trauma hospital within an hour of being wounded, the statistical odds of their survival and, and eventual recovery go up hugely um, compared to if they can't be. And so huge amounts of resource were poured in by uh, ISAF, the, the, the international coalition, particularly in Afghanistan, where distances are often huge and the terrain is very difficult um, into yeah, large scale helicopter support so that when troops were in contact, medevac could be quickly brought in with MERT teams to, to get those troops out and, and get them to hospitals quickly. Um, and that really kind of shaped a lot of the UK and indeed the US Army's um, helicopter deployments for the 10, 15 years of, of sort of long-term counterinsurgency campaigns. The biggest thing was, was always being there to provide that medevac. Um, but of course, they were also providing um, important lift and mobility for troops. In the UK's case, uh, Chinook mostly, uh, but also uh, to a degree Puma and, and Merlin. Um, and of course, the US also uh, relying very heavily on Chinook and its fleet of Blackhawks um, to, to move troops around um, and also to resupply them at forward bases and do that casualty back. Uh, when you move across to the attack helicopter space, um, the AH, uh, for the UK, that is uh, two assets, actually, it's the, the AH-64D uh, model, the, the older longer Apache, um, and now the, the Apache Guardian, which is the E model, uh, which is now coming in uh, with significantly upgraded avionics and cockpit. Um, 
and also the the Wildcat, which is a small utility helicopter in its basic base form, um, but can also mount. Uh, in the case of the HMA, that the the Navy variant uh, in the UK service can also mount stub wings with um, missiles and rockets, uh, and they also carry a gun, as most uh, most helicopters do, um, or at least are capable of doing, uh, for self-defence purposes. That'd be usually a 50 caliber uh, machine gun, uh, and on the case of the Chinook, a couple of 7.62 millimeter mini guns, um, but those are for self-defence. Um, but so the 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 Merlin. Uh, so the Wildcat can also do the attack helicopter role, but it is more typically a reconnaissance and uh, light uh, transport helicopter. We might say battle taxi. Um, so yeah, uh, the attack helicopter mission is central to the British Army, uh, to its future planning, particularly as the main source of large-scale anti-tank firepower, because the ground manoeuvre elements of the British Army are essentially very deficient in anti-tank firepower, uh, particularly compared to Russian maneuver equivalents. Uh, so, you know, Russian battalion tactical groups or, or divisional maneuver groups, um, which tend to field a great deal of heavy armor, um, both in terms of main battle tanks and also actually a lot of uh, armored fighting vehicles and infantry fighting vehicles, which um, are, are far more than the uh, javelin, so handheld javelin, shoulder-fired anti-tank uh, guided missile posts that are typically in British Army maneuver elements could handle. You know, Javelin is not necessarily um, too problematic for use against the Russian main battle tanks, but if they also have to count on them for, for taking out all of the infantry fighting vehicles and armored personnel carriers, um, then it, it's it's completely non-viable really. So having the Apache there with a lot of Hellfire missiles um, and the ability to, to pop up quickly, use that radar to very quickly target and release a salvo of those missiles and then pop back down, uh, is it has typically been used for a long time as a kind of um, a doctrinal SOP, if you like, to, to kind of theoretically buy out the, the lack of, of anti-tank killing power. In Afghanistan, what tended to happen was that the Apaches would be detached in ones or twos um, to, to loiter over um, troops that were in contact, sections that were in contact, to provide sort of relatively enduring fire support uh, in the sort of typical close air support role. Um, now, of course, uh, close support from a helicopter is much more intimate than from a fast jet, because whereas a fast jet will, will sit around at medium altitude and will then do passes, either weapons releases or gun passes, um, according to the instructions from a forward air, air controller. But also, yeah, A, it's further up, uh, B, it's it's only coming down for passes one at a time and then has to reset. And C, it, it will typically have to go and refuel um, after no more than about, you know, it's usually half an hour, 40 minutes, um, particularly if it's had to transit some distance to get there. Um, whereas a helicopter, uh, Apache can stay on station for a good hour, maybe two, uh, depends if it's got additional fuel tanks and how long it's been in the air. but. Uh, it's a it's a more persistent form of support. They tend to be lower down. Of course, they take a lot more small arms fire. Um, and indeed, the the Taliban got quite good at using RPGs as improvised airburst weapons um, to kind of pepper them with shrapnel. Um, so, for example, in Operation Anaconda, uh, it was a famous kind of uh, very very uh, problematic engagement for the Americans that lasted many hours. It was triggered by the downing of a of a Chinook. Um, they, the Americans had a lot of, of uh, Apaches damaged by RPGs using airburst and, and you know, didn't lose any, but they were out of action for some time. Um, but that kind of close support role uh, for troops in contact 
uh, is more of a, a kind of anomaly in terms of the doctrinal role of attack aviation. Um, it's what they've been used for typically for the last 15 years um, because we haven't been fighting anybody, thank goodness, who, who required large-scale anti-tank um, firepower to be able to move around the battle space. Sure. But uh, as we move back towards uh, a sort of uh, a focus on deterring great power competition, particularly um, deterring Russia in Eastern Europe, um, the Apache and the attack aviation role, that, that anti-tank um, deep uh, battle space kind of role, i.e. going into uh, what we call the, 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 the deep uh, the deep battle, which is behind the initial line of, of friendly and enemy troops, uh, going in and basically trying to take out uh, maneuver formations as they are massing for an attack or moving to the front line so that that, that close fight where the two sort of sets of troops are kind of engaged is is more doable um, because they're not being fed. So you saw this in interestingly in Nagorno-Karabakh, not with attack aviation, but with UAVs, um, where the uh, Azerbaijani UAVs meant that the Armenians were not able to uh, resupply their forces on the front line. They were not able to concentrate armor and troops uh, and then push to retake territory. But it didn't, of course, mean that the front line disappeared. In fact, the Azerbaijanis still took a lot of casualties um, pushing the and, and had to use you know traditional tanks and, and artillery and things to push the Armenians out of their frontline positions. But it, it meant that overall the frontline wasn't really tenable um, for Armenia because they, they couldn't resupply. And that's the sort of doctrinal role that aviation, uh, attack aviation is supposed to perform. Uh, support helicopters are going to be basically kept a lot further back in any peer conflict because I mean, all helicopters be a lot more vulnerable, um, but also the, the main value uh, in support helicopters like the Chinook in a in a peer fight is not the sort of thing that we associate with them with from counterinsurgency of being able to push, you know, squads of troops for platoons forward, for example, or I mean, there might be some special forces insertion done, um, but that will require against the peer opponent a huge uh, sort of suppression of, of enemy air defences, of enemy situational awareness. It will require coordination across all the domains, and it will still be quite high risk. So it's not something that we'll be doing regularly of sort of inserting troops forward. So they're much more likely to be doing kind of that that more classic support helicopter roles of, of you know, moving troops, ammunition, spare parts, anything that's kind of high priority and you want to get there faster than moving it on the ground um, around, but in the kind of in the in the, the rear of the battle battle space rather than kind of up front. Uh, and I don't think you'll see the medevac um, thing done nearly as much in any peer fight simply because you just lose the helicopters. Hmm. Um, we don't really have enough of them for that. Well, uh, Justin, I think you've uh, you've done a great job of covering the very different roles that we have uh, within combat aviation and what they mean. Now, one of the things that struck me while you were giving your answer was that it sounds to me like already many of the roles that we can envision for combat aviation have already been filled and that we even have the right type of helicopters to answer these specific roles uh, in an efficient setting. It sounds like the theory has been fleshed out. So my question is, why do we need that reorganization now? 
and more specifically referring to your article in Fewer Wings and Prayer to the Future, what are the significant cuts that happened uh, this year specifically? There were two papers, including the uh, the integrated review, um, that significantly altered the landscape, don't they, for combat aviation in the UK, its, its future, uh, from a budgetary but from a doctrinal aspect as well. So if you could briefly run through, through us uh, what these cuts are, what this envisioning is, and, and and why now? Why, after we fleshed out already so much of what combat aviation does for our troops on the ground, why does it need this rethinking, specifically for the CH-47s and the C-130Js? Yeah, um, so I mean, the, the, the why uh, is essentially because, uh, once again, uh, defense found itself in the position where it, it did not have the cash to cover all of the, the programmatic commitments it had. And indeed, the programmatic commitments, so the, the, the acquisition programs and development programs that it had, uh, were not really, even if they all came to fruition, were not going to produce a balanced force structure that was um, you know, <laughs> applicable or, or, or particularly appropriate to the range of, of high level you know, security asks, i.e. what does the government want the armed forces to do or be able to do. Um, now, uh, there is a huge amount of mismanagement within defence. Historically speaking, defence has been a kind of has become a kind of bogeyman for um, you know poor management of programmes and cost growth. But to be honest, while there are plenty of problematic behaviours within the procurement process, particularly over specification and then constantly changing things. Um, so rather than telling industry this is rough, you know, this is we want something that can do this as an output. Please design stuff for us. Uh, and then we'll compete it you know, and, and yeah, buy one. <laughs> um, it, it, they tend instead to go, this is very specifically what we want, and it's going to do it in this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. It's going to have this system, this system, this system, and it's going to be X tons, and it's going to fit in this, in this kind of weight category and, and size category and all the rest. And so, and then they change that throughout the development period. And they also delay it because funding might be short in one year or other. So they, they slow the program down and then try and speed it up again. And so you end up with a very, very inefficient process. Um, and, you know, for example, the, the Ajax program at the moment with, for the, for the uh, future recce slash medium armor um, vehicle that's supposed to be replacing the, the uh, old CVRTs. Um, and essentially that's run into very publicized problems with vibration and, and weight growth and noise. Uh, you know, apparently that's had more than 10,000 uh, modifications uh, during development from, from MOD. So, you know, this is, I mean, it's been a long development and they've changed, they've changed several times the main role that they wanted to do. So um, there are these problems, but the biggest major issue is that uh, the successive British governments have and um, have, have held a level of ambition for defence, what we call particularly full-spectrum forces, i.e. forces that can basically do everything the US does, but at about 10% scale. Um, so they want to be able to do counterinsurgency-type operations all around the world. They want to be able to do divisional warfighting at scale as our, part of our commitment in NATO. They want to be the largest and most important non US NATO partner. They want to provide a command function uh, to, for the other nations to plug into. So, for example, we've uh, exercised for a long time with a Danish battle group as part of a British composite division. Um, but of course, that implies that you have to have commanders uh, who have commanded and exercised at that level, which has implications for the size of forces and the sort of fighting you have to do, at least exercises. Um, and that, you know, it, it, basically, there's a level of ambition which 
essentially requires about three and a half percent of GDP spent on defence to fund properly. And we've been consistently trying to do that at about two percent of GDP on defence, which is the, the core underlying reason for a lot of these bad behaviours in defence. And is also a core underlying reason why uh, a lot of uh, you know programmes end up with these very strange mixes of extremely capable in one area, but actually really limited in another, because they've had to kind of penny pinch little bits to, to make the figures work throughout development, while also maintaining this very high level of ambition um, in terms of capability um, in the bits that are specified. So you end up with strange compromise. I mean, one of them would be the fact that the new aircraft carriers, you know, extremely capable in many ways, um, you know, very advanced ammunition, fuel handling, aircraft handling facilities, really innovative layout, um, although interesting damage control implications, but I won't go into that. Um, but of course, they're not nuclear powered, which means that, you know, if they steam around at full speed, they have to be refueled every three or three to five days, which means you have to have a large fleet of auxiliary vessels that can come out and give them fuel. And, it, you know, they also can't keep up with an American carrier battle group uh, when it's doing, you know, a, proper operations because American carrier battle groups tend to go around at about 30 knots. Um, more than that, when they're trying to generate uh, flight speed, for the carriers themselves go a bit faster. Um, but of course, the British carriers are top out at about 25 knots, so they can't actually integrate easily. Um, and you know, the Americans would have to tweak their entire way of operating in order for us to fit in there. So it's not it's not a, a kind of a deal breaker. There's still plenty of uses you can put the carriers to. But my point being, it's an interesting mix to save about a billion pounds in development to kind of hobble them in this way and mean they have much greater support support requirements when at sea, although they're a lot easier to dispose of later. Um, but anyway, that's by the by. When it comes to the, the the kind of the reorganization of the aviation fleets and also the fixed wing fleets, um, essentially, because of that picture I've just outlined, where the government the, the, the government requires defence to constantly try and fit a a round peg into a square hole or vice versa uh, in terms of capability, ambition versus funding, um, and the worst positioned uh, going into the review was the army, um, which is desperately in need of modernisation across pretty much its whole equipment portfolio, from artillery through tanks through warrior armoured fighting vehicles through yeah, it was. They need the lot. Um, and so they had to prioritise um, pretty drastically. And of course, they lost uh, the main warrior uh, infantry fighting vehicle um, right at the right at the end, about two weeks out from the review. So there was a lot of horse trading around. Um, one of the things that did well uh, was the uh, attack aviation. So um, the British Army's uh, attack aviation has been uh, reorganized into uh, what's called one aviation brigade so it's been put into its own maneuver formation the idea being that rather than uh, holding the helicopters at, at joint helicopter command level and then basically parceling them out in support as has been done through the last 10-15 years of counterinsurgency um, instead they will be held and commanded and organized and supported as their own independent maneuver element and then deployed at scale um, so 16 helicopters as a sort of the half of it being being a typical uh, unit um, going up to 32 if you want, um, which would be most which would be the, the sort of max effort sustained from the battle group. Um, the advantages to this being that you can mitigate a lot of the threats to vulnerability um, because you can plan better and you can make decisions on when and where you employ and how you employ your attack aviation 
um, according to uh, an air-centric planning mindset, i.e. people who are planning based on a detailed knowledge of how the platforms work and what their capabilities and limitations are. Whereas if you held them as a, as a sort of supporting asset, that ground units call on just for you know a pair of Apache, let's say, to support with to, to give anti-tank support, then they're basically having to operate when the ground component wants them to and where the ground component wants them to, which in a high intensity conflict essentially means that wherever the ground that the sort of the ground forces come up against heavy resistance, typically the heaviest will be at the main axis of an enemy advance, they will immediately call for anti-tank support. But that may well be in daylight. So A, a lot of the evasive tactics and survivability tactics that the helicopters would normally use won't be possible. It will be where the enemy is concentrating its strength, his strength. So probably large concentrations of anti-aircraft uh, equipment, both cannons and, and surface-to-air missiles, as well as potentially their own aviation support and potentially fast air as well. Uh, so essentially, you're likely to lose them. Um, and you're likely to lose them very quickly. Sure. Um, there are a lot of people who, who have concerns about the survivability of attack helicopters in a, in, against a peer opponent in the modern battle space. Um, but however you skin it, it's a lot more likely to be survivable if they are commanded and kind of um, employed according to people who actually understand them and are planning specifically for those purposes, rather than being thrown away in penny packets uh, in what's likely to be the worst possible scenario to employ them in against the main axis of enemy advance and potentially in daylight. Um, so there's that. And, you know, one of the reasons it did well is because we'd already bought them. Um, so we'd already bought the, the 50 uh, AH-64Es, um, the new uh, Apache Guardian, uh, to replace our uh, Apache Longbows, which were aging in terms of avionics, but also had seen very, very heavy service in Iraq and Afghanistan and were really pretty worn out. Um, so we'd already bought them. And it was a case of how best to use this, one of the few bits of the British Army's assets that have been modernized and are are you know coming in brand spanking new so organizing them into one aviation brigade was a big win there the two kind of big fleets that really suffered uh in the defense command paper which was the sort of defense specific bit uh, alongside the integrated review were the c-130j uh, hercules and the uh, super hercules and the um uh puma fleet so the Puma Mark IIs, uh, which is a support helicopter, the medium support helicopter role. And the reason they went, uh, as opposed to anything else, the reason they went at all is because defence needs to modernise and the money isn't there to both keep the existing structure in place uh, and also modernise, uh, so buy new stuff. Um, and if you look at, and, and the only way to generate the sort of savings required to fund the modernization plans, even even sort of trimmed down, moderated modernization plans that were in place, um, was to cut entire fleets. If you just trim a few bits off a fleet without cutting the whole thing, you actually save very little money. And in some cases, you actually don't save any money or, or it gets more expensive because you're still having to run all of the support uh, costs and all of the training and uh, you know, everything else, and all the maintenance and basing for the fleet but you just get less aircraft out of it. And actually the aircraft themselves are actually quite a small bit of the, of the, of the kind of overall cost. Um, so typically trimming fleets down uh, doesn't save you much money. Uh, the only way to save significant money is to cut whole fleets. And if you looked at the various different platforms, uh, air platforms across defense, the ones which you would suffer the least uh, total missions lo uh, capabilities lost were C-130 and Puma, because 
It's not to say that they didn't do hugely important work, particularly the C-130s. Um, but in both cases, they were kind of the mid-level the mid bit of lift um, in their category. So for Puma, you had the, this medium helicopter, uh, you had Chinook as the heavy lift above it, and you had Wildcat as the light kind of battle taxi reconnaissance, but also with some lift capabilities in terms of lifting a few people, particularly battlefield commanders, for example, or senior officers around um, at the lower end. And so not that they can do everything that Puma did, but in most cases, if you needed something done that Puma was previously going to do, you can do it with one or other of those two, Wildcat or Chinook, not necessarily as efficiently uh, in terms of the individual sortie, uh, and of course, you're still losing a capacity overall, but you can still cover off most of the missions. Um, and there is still talk of, of replacing them with a, with a medium, uh, a new medium helicopter in about 2020, from 2024, 2025. Um, so Augusta Westland or well, Leonardo, the part of Leonardo that uh, was Augusta Westland and Airbus are very excited about that. I personally don't think that competition will survive the next defense review, but We'll see. Uh, I think they'll look at the balance of support helicopter uh, and the budget when they come to the next defense review and go, it's fine with this. Um, but anyway, uh, and with the with the similar story with the C-130s, you know, hugely valuable capability, particularly for special forces support. But you had A-400, you have 22 A-400Ms, uh, which are larger, longer range, more cap uh, great, much more payload capacity, um, not a million miles bigger in terms of overall size. Um, now, obviously, they can't do everything that a C-130 can do. Uh, there are a few roles where it is genuinely where A-400 is genuinely too big. Uh, A-400 also has also had quite a rocky road towards full maturity. But a lot of the things that, for example, you know, rear exit dropping of of, of um, uh, small boats, for example, which is something the Special Forces Chinooks, uh, sorry, Hercules is used to do. Um, you can do that with A400M. We just haven't funded and cleared it yet. Um, side exit parachute drops, which were being um, messed with by the, uh, the, the, the prop wash um, from the A400s, hugely powerful engines. Um, you know, we, we're getting towards clearing now. The, the French had already cleared it and we're using it. Um, so again, it's not it's not that the aircraft can't be used for it, it's just that we hadn't prioritized it because we had C-130. Um, and for areas where A400 really is too big, often you can actually cover those things off with a long range uh, Chinook. Um, so again, it's a hugely important loss of capacity, but you're not losing huge numbers of overall mission sets by cutting C-130 compared to cutting anything else. Um, so essentially the reason those two sort of middle of the road fixed wing and rotary lift fleets went is they were the fleets that you could cut if you had to cut fleets which they decided they had did that would lose you the, the fewest number of overall mission capabilities even though it's big reduction in capacity and it, it sounds to me quite in line with what you were saying before uh, it's the full spectrum approach and saying okay we're going to do some cuts but we want to not only maintain a high amount of capabilities fulfill uh, many different roles uh, but also modernize specialize and deepen uh, these roles i think they should call it the have your cake and eat it too approach rather instead of the full spectrum approach however beyond that jest i also think more or less it sounds to me from your answer there that we can say we're actually on somewhat of the right track here uh, because we are modernizing we are hearing the experts and we're not neglecting opportunities and letting off these decay or being outdated um, which is good but this sort of leads into my next question as well 
that this year has more of a focus on, as you said, great power competition. However, at the same time, we, f we find that we're actually uh, still using combat aviation on the ground, perhaps in, in Afghanistan, uh, although I'm not sure what role we've got left in, in Afghanistan. So I just wanted to ask you this. What, what, what roles do we have being fulfilled right now uh, on the ground, so to speak, and what capabilities do they require and are they being met? Um, so, I, as far as I'm aware, we don't have uh, enduring uh, aviation commitments in Iraq and Afghanistan anymore. Um, and Afghanistan, uh, you know, final pullout is underway, but we've only really had a training commitment there and some special forces uh, for, for some time now. Um, and mostly, I think, using American or contractor helicopter support. Um, the, the major, um, you know, the, the UK has uh, been providing some aviation support through to the French uh, and the, the joint MINUSMA forces in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and of course, enduring support back and forth to uh, UK forces, training, exercising in, in Europe, in the Middle East, um, support to uh, some of the special forces operations in the Middle East. Um, so in a sense then, uh, barring what you call ground missions at the moment, would you say that this reorganization that's happening now, the integrated review that's happening now, is considering the future um, quite wholeheartedly and with the luxury and privilege of being able to do so? And is that is that sort of, is that long-term thinking baked into uh, the reorganization that's happening now? Um, I, there's definitely an attempt to, to put a, a more um, policy, <laughs> policy-led uh, framework on, on defence uh, in particular. But the issue is that if you look at the integrated review, it, it's, it's good at the very high-level priorities setting. So one of the things that's quite interesting is the pivot to Asia that was kind of uh, mooted before is, is very much a kind of slight turn towards maybe doing a little bit more in the Pacific. Um, and actually, uh, somewhat unexpectedly, but I think very welcome, um, is the fact that most of the, the language of the integrated review uh, and the DCP, uh, the Defence Command Paper, is stresses the, the centrality of the Euro-Atlantic area um, to Britain's security and defence requirements. Um, and in other words, NATO and Russia, um, with a bit of kind of Mediterranean as well. Um, because, you know, it's pretty hard to argue that the only really serious state threat that exists to the UK is Russia. Um, and it also poses a, a very you know, ongoing threat to uh, allies and partners, um, both NATO and, and other partners uh, in Eastern Europe and, and down towards um, the, the, um, the Balkans as well. Um, and so, you know, the, the UK armed forces are not ready to fight, a, 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 take part in, in a major war against Russia. Um, they, you know, apart from the else, we don't have the munitions, but, um, you know, the, the Royal Air Force would be able to put in various you know, important capabilities, but again, they're not optimised for it. The Royal Navy is not really a warfighting force, uh, apart from the undersea component, the submarines, which are. Um, it's more of a presence force and, and sort of you know, for, for policing global sea lanes, showing presence, doing FONOPS. Um, you know, if you look at the, the weapons loadout in particular, um, particularly the offensive weapons, but also the defensive missile um, uh, magazine size, uh, on the Type 45s, the Type 23s, the upcoming Type 26 and 31s, uh, it's pretty hard to look at those and not conclude that the, the Royal Navy isn't really set up for warfighting, at least high intensity, um, barring, of course, the subsurface, um, where the astutes are, are, are you know, genuinely world-leading in a bunch of ways. Um, we, we can decide that the Euro-Atlantic area is the priority, but, of course, 
the integrated view also says we're going to keep up commitments in Afghanistan, we're going to keep up commitments in the Middle East, we're going to do training and advise all over the world, we're going to, you know, provide <laughs> responsive global presence for X, Y, and Z. In other words, there's actually very little that the, the integrated review says we won't do. And therefore, while it provides a guide in terms of policy priorities, i.e. the Euro-Atlantic area in effect, which means revitalization of the capability to hopefully deter any Russian um, uh, kinetic misbehavior, um, which is a tall order, um, but something I think we really need to do um, because it is our core NATO commitment. Um, it, it also still kind of says we're going to do every, we're going to keep doing everything else. So there isn't as much of a uh, a narrowing down of ambition to give capacity to modernize for that really high demand, uh, sorry, high, high difficulty task, as perhaps some would have liked. What exactly? is a successful role for combat aviation and what what can we point to as examples of where we could say do you know what the investment that we made in these combat fleets uh, in these helicopter support roles is definitely justified uh, you know because if we look at that scenario even if it's hypothetical uh, you know that's where we're getting value for uh, for the pound that we've put in um, can you point to any of those and uh, on the reverse, on the flip side, what does a worst case scenario look like? Where can we say, actually, you know, helicopters aren't making a difference? Uh, you know, if we're talking about an enemy, perhaps you've mentioned the Pacific, um, it, you know, will will that extra firepower, so to speak, uh, make any difference uh, against a, a better armed foe or, or a foe like uh, Russia that uh, has the technology, the Gen 3, Gen 4 manpads, for example, um, uh, to be able to counter this effectively. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, so, I mean, the, it's, it's a funny old one because if you're looking at the high intensity scenario, the success story is that we don't ever find out um, because the only reason why uh, Russia or China uh, would uh, undertake armed aggression against territories as Russia hasn't, you know, <laughs> repeatedly since 2008 with Georgia, first of all, and then Ukraine, um, is if they think that there's no likelihood that they will suffer significant penalties in response. So, it, for example, encroachment into NATO territory, which again, I should stress, people sometimes say, oh, you know, yeah, why would Russia want to invade the Baltic states? So, well, no, of course they don't want to invade the Baltic states per se. They, they don't, it's not about territory gain. It's about the political imbalance that would result from it. So, for example, in the Baltic states, all you would need the, the prize would be invalidating Article Five and thus undermining the entire reason for raison d'être for NATO, um, for the goal of allowing Russia to go back to what, where it's much more comfortable, where in terms of having bilateral relations with its neighbours, where it is big and its neighbours are small, um, as opposed to the current situation, where generally speaking. Uh, Russia has to deal with NATO as a bloc whenever it's trying to put pressure on its neighbours. Um, and that there, Russia is relatively small and weak and NATO is big and rich. So, uh, you know, the, the political prize is not territory control. It's political um, dynamics, geopolitical dynamic change. Um, the current status quo is not acceptable to Russia. Um, it, it feels it's not competitive in its own immediate near abroad. It doesn't have a controlling say in what the small countries in its periphery do politically and who they align with and, and how they do business and how Russian business is able to be done in those countries. Um, 
And so you see, for example, what they're able to do in terms of exerting huge amounts of influence over Georgia and Ukraine through frozen conflicts on their territories. Again, it's not about controlling the territory per se. It's about establishing a controlling say in how that nation is able to govern itself and how that nation is able to, to align itself because you can make unacceptable problems for them if they do something that Moscow doesn't like. So in an Eastern European context, successful combat aviation uh, as an employment model is convincing the Russians that there is a, a credible enough threat to movement of massed armor that they feel that the, their, one of their core advantages in the kind of Eastern European NATO-Russia dynamic, which is the fact that they're, uh, they have the advantage of the aggressor, so they can choose time and place, um, and they can prepare in, in mass forces in a way that the defender would then have to struggle to try and you know, catch up with. Um, but of course, massing armor, if combat aviation is judged credible, is a very good way to get lots of it destroyed very quickly. Um, so in that sense, uh, for example, 16, 16 uh, Apaches with a full loadout of Hellfire or, or the follow-on uh, joint air-to-ground missile, Jagam, um, which has just been selected, uh, is about 200, 256 missiles. Now, if you assume a probability of kill of around 70%, so 0.7, um, which is slightly conservative, actually, based on uh, recent conflicts with ATGMs, um, but if you assume that, that's easily enough to destroy a Russian battalion tactical group's armor capability, both IFVs and APCs and, and MDTs. Um, so if you have a force that can credibly uh, get in behind the initial line of troops, particularly at night, uh, particularly along what we call the seams, so the, the, the um, boundaries between different unit areas of responsibility, which are typically harder to kind of focus on because individual battalion tactical group or divisional commanders or army commanders tend to look at their own area and then you have a kind of scene where they, their responsibilities overlap. Um, so one of the things that reconnaissance be trying to do would be find those seams so that they can be exploited. Um, but if you have that capability to get in, then you shape adversary behavior. They're less likely to, to mass armor, at, or if they do mass armor, they're going to have to do it in a more surreptitious way. It's going to take them longer. They might have to take more circuitous routes. They'll have to spend more resource in terms of putting defenses around it. It's imposing cost and complexity. Um, so that to me is, is success. I mean, frankly, if we ever find out whether uh, or, you know, one aviation brigade can blunt a Russian um, battalion tactical group advance, uh, frankly, all bets are off anyway. I almost don't care about the outcome. It's not true. I do care about the outcome. But at that point, you know, <laughs> There's there's a shooting war with the Russians and you know uh, everything's everything's in real real trouble beyond whether aviation is hugely effective or not as an investment decision. And that concludes the first part of my interview with Justin Bronk on the subject of the United Kingdom's combat aviation fleets, their strategy and operations in the wake of this year's integrated review. Stay tuned for the second part where we elaborate more on this topic. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.